Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. In this salon, you can't handle the truth. Fiction versus nonfiction smackdown. Nonfiction guru Richard Froud squares off against fictionista Joanna Ruoco in this smackdown between two opposing, or are they, forces. They talk about how truth finds its way into our work as writers of both fiction and nonfiction, and whether one genre actually does a better job of transmitting it, whatever the truth may be. My name is Richard Froud. I think I know everyone in this room. <laughs> so it's very nice of you to, to, to come out tonight. Um, and uh, this I'm, is Joanna. Yeah, I'm Joanna Rocco. I, I have really bad vision, so I may or may not know everyone in this room. I'm not, <laughs> not, not totally sure. That's pretty, yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the introduction, right? right? Yeah. yeah, that's it. So um, actually, by way of introduction... What we're going to do, since this is a uh, salon about truth and fiction, we're going to start by playing uh, Two Truths and a Lie. And uh, do you want to go first? I'll go first. Do you do one and then I'll do one? Okay. Okay. Yeah. But pay pay careful Maybe, yeah, make some notes, maybe. All right. Um, So I'm training for an ultra marathon. Um, and last uh, weekend on a training run in Boulder, um, I broke 18 years of veganism by eating a nutrition bar that my friend running partner um, is producing, which uh, is, has as a major component uh, ground crickets and soldier fly larvae. Um, it tasted like carob. It really tasted very strongly of carob. That was the, and the, the, te- the there was like a, a nuttiness to the texture, but I, I, I still feel very, very weird about it. So for a year, I carried a car, a car key on my keychain that was for a car that I didn't own. And I did it because when I moved to Los Angeles, I thought I should buy a car. Um, and I found this old. Subaru Legacy and uh, had those weird seat belts that when you sit in it they come back and I you know I didn't I didn't like them at all but the car was very cheap it seemed reliable I took it to a mechanic and had it like a diagnostic done to make sure I wasn't getting ripped off I was like this is fine but I couldn't get over the seat belts I thought whenever I got in there they were just gonna like <laughs> that would be it so I decided not to buy it and then I called the guy back who I was uh who was selling it to me, and I had actually sold him a copy of my first book, um, which uh, was a book of translations of Charles Baudelaire. He was very interested in Baudelaire, and he never paid me for it, but I was like, here you go, here you go, Um, thinking that this would, like, you know, smooth things over for the deal. Um, But uh, I called him back, and to be like, sorry, I don't want the car, and he never picked up, never returned any of my messages. But I felt bad, because, you know, we... We kind of hit it off. So I kept the key to the car on my keychain the entire time that I lived in Los Angeles, thinking that maybe I would run into him or he would get back to me. But yeah, he never did. So then when I realized I was leaving, I just threw it away. But anyway, for one year, I had the key to a car I didn't own on my keychain. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So when I was in high school, 
uh, I was in a jam band called Liquid Mountain Groove. Uh, I have uh, and, and had no musical talent. I had friends that were um, really talented guitarists and drummers, and they let me into the band, I believe, because in high school, I had waist-length hair that I wore down and this handmade uh, patchwork dress, and it really fit with the vibe of the band. And, our, and um, So they let me play the rain stick. And so I, <laughs> I, played, I played the rain stick in this band. And our claim to fame is that we, um, we played Nectars, which is uh, in Burlington, Vermont, which is where the band, the very popular jam band Fish, got their start. And that's our band, Liquid Mountain Groove's claim to fame. Um, my personal claim to fame is that I had a rain stick solo. <laughs> I was accompanied by some light hand drumming, but I was really, really front and center for that moment. I've never been to KFC. I've eaten at pretty much every other fast food restaurant that there is, but I've never been to KFC. I don't even know. Well, I do know what it stands for. It stands for Kentucky Fried Chicken. But I've never been to KFC. When I first came to England, uh, to America from England, I was amazed at the uh, variety of garbage fast food restaurants in America. So I tried to go to all of them to see what they uh, would be like, but I never made it to KFC. There was always like some, some reason why it just never worked out. So that, you know. Oh. I don't know, I've never been there. So. Okay, so some of you might know that I write uh, romance novels under pen names, um, but I have um, have a new a new project um, which I'm very excited about. Um, I just signed a contract with a small press called Arcades Project, and they're releasing novelizations of arcade games. Um, and so I have signed on to write the novelization of Robotron 2084, which is my absolute favorite arcade game. Um, it's a 2D bullet hell shoot 'em up um, scrolling game, and it it takes place in the year 2084. And there's like one lone guy, and he's got to save the last human family. And there's a whole bunch of robots because robots have taken over the world and, and killed pretty much like every member of the human race except these like seven people um, that you're you're trying to save as this, as this lone guy. And th- so all these different robots, there's like um, spheroids and electroids and hulks and just they're all different shapes and colors and they make crazy noises. But um, I'm I'm sort of working with the idea that the main enemy is the algorithm itself. And so and so I'm like trying to use um like this this idea as like a formal structuring principle for the book. But that that's all I have so far. But that's that's what I'm working with. The only reason I have uh, MFA in poetry is because when I was applying to it, it said you only had to send in 15 pages of poetry compared to 30 pages of uh prose fiction. <laughs> And I uh, didn't think, I, I thought I had like 12 decent pages, so I just sent it in, and uh, they, you know, let me in. Um, so this is, uh, otherwise, you know, I really wanted to go on the fiction, uh, the fiction track, but I didn't feel like there was, uh, I had enough behind me to, to do that. So uh, th- I guess this is the root of my uh, suspicion of genre, that I was able to just send in whatever I wanted, and they... Uh, they were like, oh, yeah, okay, that's poetry. Um, but anyway, that's the only reason that like, uh, I uh, 
people think I'm a poet because I have that degree and I kind of faked it. <laughs> That's it. You have to decide now which one, which one of mine was a lie and which one of Andrew. Okay. My three were I had a car key on my keychain for over a year that belonged to someone else's car. I've never been to KFC and I only have a poetry MFA because of the page requirement. I don't know, wait, wait, here, here Joanna's first. I mean, mine were ultra, <laughs> crickets, ultra marathon, um, right, and then Liquid Mountain Groove, Rain Stick Solo, um, and then the novelization of the arcade game, Robotron 2084, which you can play it one up on Colfax when you leave here tonight. It's a wonderful game. Well, you have to. Uh, it's 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 two truths and a lie. Two truths and a lie is the name of the game. Yeah. Or it could be a trick. Oh. Okay. Well, or, I, I don't know how we can do this in a, in a way that's, that's going to make sense. Okay. Put your hand up if you think the keychain was false. KFC. Ooh. Uh, the MFA. Some people put their hand up for two. <laughs> And then ultra ultra marathon, true or false? Ultra marathon. Ultra marathon, true or true or false? True. Okay. All right. Liquid Mountain Groove. Oh, if it's only one. If it's if it's uh. Are we voting true or false? We're voting for false. We're voting for the one lie. The one lie. Well. Ultra ultra marathon. <laughs> Liquid Mountain Groove. Cut every, 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 everyone. Okay. Um, and uh, novelization of Robotron. Come on, guys. <laughs> well, I don't know your name. What is your name? No, no, no. Behind a net. <laughs> well, you. I did. I said I thought I knew everyone. <laughs> You were onto something, though, because we should admit all of mine were true, and all of Joanna's were false. <laughs> because I am representing nonfiction, and Joanna's representing fiction. Right. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> so, there's too. I feel like too many people believed I was in a jam band. I'm starting. I'm starting they were very uh, seductive truths, yeah. I think. Uh, well, yeah. fault or lies, I guess. Yeah. Oh. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> that wasn't an option. <laughs> okay, so, well, now we have uh, we've introduced the topic in some style. I think... Um, do you want to go first right, with so, your remarks? Yeah, so I didn't, um, I didn't know this was a smackdown until I, I saw the billing, nonfiction, fiction, smackdown. And then I uh, uh, got very f- 
frightened because uh, Richard Froud is very fearsome. He's feared on three continents. Um, and I thought, <laughs> and I thought I was going to say that I'd come down um, with faux, faux trichinosis from the mock meat that my friends had grilled for me on my birthday. Um, and then I thought, no, wait a second. Like my bloodlust came out. I was like, I'm just going to bare knuckle Froud into the ground. You know, it's just like, it's going to be amazing. And then I kind of came to my senses and I thought, okay, well, maybe, um, maybe I'll just start uh, thinking about what the difference between fiction and nonfiction, you know, is in my mind and sort of, sort of stake out the territories and enter into a dialogue, which is like the least smackdown kind of thing a person could possibly do. But there you go. I jotted down um, a couple of notes on like things that came to mind when I was like, what's the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Like I write and teach fiction, Richard teaches memoir and writes, you know, memoir, nonfiction, you know, but what 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 actually is a distinction between those two genres? So the things that I um I came up with, um fiction's main resource is imagination. Memoir's main resource is memory or lived experience. Fiction's goal is to create a world. Memoir's goal is to represent a particular experience of the world. Uh, Fiction's not obligated to represent externally verifiable facts. Memoir is supposed to stand in relation to the truth. Um, Memoir multiplies the reader's understanding of human possibility. And fiction multiplies the reader's understanding of human possibility and impossibility. And also non-human possibility and impossibility. Because it could be objects, it could be the environment, it could be anything. And so I was, I was like, jotted that down and then I was happy with it for like 0.2 seconds. And then I was like, oh, I can think of so many exceptions, like so many works of fiction that position themselves in relationship to you know the world that we know and so many memoirs that are like the history of water or that that really like transgress the ideas that I I just mentioned but then but then there's just the fact that I'm sort of grounding it on this distinction between imagination and memory or lived experience that I just don't I don't know if it's possible to make. So I, I write fiction, I identify as a fiction writer because I make stuff up. That's, you know, that's, that's what I do. But so, um, so much of our imagination, I think, is um, shaped by what we experience, our personal histories, our social interactions, the books we read, the TV shows we watch. And I have um, one, I have one particular thing that happened to me after I, I published my um, first collection of short stories where I have a story um, called Pests where um, there's a a lonely woman. She's celebrating a a birthday in her mid-30s and her brother travels from the country a great distance bringing her as a gift baby groundhogs in a plastic bucket. And this woman is, uh, you know, she's she's awkward. She's, um, She's contemplating on her birthday as maybe many of us do like she's going to be awkward and lonely for many years to come right or or lonelier and and more awkward and so it's sort of it's sort of dreary and um her her parents have died the brother you know they're 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 now basically orphans and she starts to think there's without parents to to hold us together you know what what is there and and there's the story ends with this image of a playground swing with the with the chains missing and then there's a suggestion of incest and after this story um was published um i get a call from my dad and he's he's like 
He's like, my dad doesn't, my dad doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't read. Um, he's like, you know, how you doing, kid? I'm like, I'm good, dad. Real, real good. He's like, all right, well, you know. <laughs> uh, he's from Brooklyn. He's like, your, uh, your, your mother read me, uh, read me a story. <laughs> Is there something you want to tell me? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what story, Pop? And he's like, you, you know what story. And so I like, I... I thought of this story. And the thing is, is that my brother brought me two groundhogs in a plastic bucket on my birthday. And it was, it was like this wonderful thing. It was also, I mean, they were clearly like moribund, like they were not going to make it. And he brought them, he brought them, he brought them for me because he killed their mother because he'd flooded, he'd flooded the holes. He's a farmer, right? And he was, but every, every one of my birthdays, because I am a vegan, he spares an animal, right? So he like was bringing me these groundhogs and then he, you know, they were not going to make it. And he, he was like, oh, I'll release them into the wild. And he came back and he was like, it was amazing. They scampered off into the sunset. It was amazing. And, and years later, I was like, did they scamper away? He's like, why do you ask me that? You know, so. <laughs> but anyway, because I had used, because I had used those details, like even though this story, I totally, I hadn't even remembered, I hadn't even thought about it. But because I used those details, um, to, to sort of anchor that that story, um, it brought up those it brought up those questions, and I think it's something that when I go back to a story, I can always find those details, like those things that came into it from you know my life, even though the um, the sort of kernel of that story is an exploration of a kind of trans like transgression and intimacy, and it's it's not you know it's not actually something that the scenes, the dialogue, it's, it's nothing that half the character isn't me, but, but those things made it into it. But then, and I also, you know, I was, I was thinking about, well, memoir or nonfiction, but it's not like, um, it's not like our, our memories give us this like unmediated access to truth or to some sort of objective reality. I mean, that's also, um, that's also sort of outside. I mean, that, that's, that's just not, that's not the way it works. And neuroscientists are actually conducting all these research experiments these days. And they, they're showing that when you remember something, each time you remember it, you actually change. This is when fiction writers start talking neuroscience. It gets a little dicey. But like, it actually changes the like, neuronal structure of, of the brain. Like The memory itself is always changing. So our memories are also fictionalized. Eyewitness accounts are, right, are notoriously unreliable because you know, every person is... Um, <clears throat> you know, has their own angle of perception. So, you know, there's maybe many lowercase t truths, but, you know, what is that one sort of objective truth? You know, is it there? Do we have access to it? But then even for one, one individual person remembering, right, it's always, um, it's always changed. Our memories are, it's like a, a process that involves maybe as much creation and fiction as, you know, the things that we're, we're conjuring out of, out of thin air. Um, I have this very, very vivid memory of getting off the school bus um, as a little kid and coming down the driveway. My family moved from New York City to Vermont and, my, um, and seeing my mom with a handgun shooting 
our um, ancient evil-natured ram Boreas in in the head, right? Like putting him down because he he was like attacking. He was like this attack ram. It was very frightening, very frightening days in my childhood. Um, and my and I, I remember this vividly. And my brother remembers it. The two of us getting off the school bus. My mother swears this did not happen. She did kill the ram, but. Um, she didn't. She was like, I didn't do that when you were coming home from school. I did that where, when you couldn't see it happen. I mean, she did. She borrowed. A, she borrowed a gun. She killed the ram. Um, she says we didn't see it. And you know, if, it, if I was writing a memoir, that's like a that's a really strong memory that I am like I go back to that moment. Which my mother's like, you didn't see that. But so much of our memories. I mean, I have I have childhood memories that I realize when I you know pick up a book to read to like a young friend. I'm like, oh, that that was Sarah Crew. That didn't happen to me. Um, and like we hear we hear and I call my parents. I'm like, I thought you mistreated me. It was so horrible when I was in that attic. It was just that I read that book a hundred times. Um, so. I I just, you know, you, you, you hear a story like so many times and you kind of make it, um, you kind of make it your own. Um, so I don't know. So what, so what I started, when I started thinking about the way that imagination and memory are kind of like co-implicated in, in this process, I, I, you know, in the process of, of writing down anything, I, I just started to think, oh, maybe Richard and I are, are actually in sort of the, the same territory to a certain extent and maybe the difference um, between fiction and nonfiction is the story you tell yourself as you write it um, and the way and the way that story might might help you um, kind of come up with like the selection criteria for the sorts of things you're interested in putting into your work you know you're saying well this is a story of my life or this is a story of you know, robots on the planet Megatron or like whatever you start, you start telling yourself a story about what you're writing and it governs what you include, um, include in your work. But then also, um, I think it, I think it also has something to do with the way people approach the genre, like what you expect when it comes labeled fiction or nonfiction, which is something that might get put on a text after, um, after the fact. And, um, I, I, also, as a last story, I promise, as, as a kid, as a five-year-old, I had a kin- kindergarten friends come to my house, and I, I, I thought delighted all of them by, by telling them that um, a family of wolves lived in the drain pipe by my house, and we would go up, and we would... Um, we would we would look for these wolves, get very scared, run away, see the wolves, run away, go back. So, you know, and this was a wonderful afternoon. It was like the best afternoon. It was so fun. And then the phone calls started coming. Right, the parents calling my mother. You know, like how? What kind of mother are you? The children are playing around wild animals, right? And this this was like the first the first time I sort of realized like, oh. Like how, like the boundary between make believe and like, and and lying and truth is like this muddy thing, and and what you what people are sort of what their expectations are is going to like govern how the, how they react to it, and then maybe when there is a certain expectation, like I I didn't say this is make believe. I was like there are wolves, and so part of me part of me has this sense that okay like. Maybe maybe we have this obligation to to announce this is fiction, this is not fiction. But then there was this other part of me that was so excited to live in this subjunctive reality where there might have been wolves, and I almost felt that 
Um, by inviting my friends into that world and, and showing them the wolves, that was going to make them appear. And so I, I found, like, years later, um, this, this little like, part of this Wallace Stevens poem and it was so exactly spoke to that experience that I'm just going to, it's really short, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, it's from On the Road Home. It was when I said, there is no such thing as the truth, that the grape seemed fatter, the fox ran out of his hole. And, and I was like, that's it, he, the wolves, the, he, he made them happen. Um, and so I guess, um, I think... I think about myself um, as, as um, a fiction writer because I don't really um, discriminate between you know, what is the fiction in my memory, what is the memory in my fiction as I write. And when you call something fiction, I think that people are more likely to approach it with that kind of openness. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. Well... Despite my apparent truth-telling in the previous game, I will uh, tell you unashamedly that I have been known to play very fast and loose with the truth. (laughs) Um, And it was only really when I came to Lighthouse and begun to teach memoir classes that I had to develop and consider a position in relation to the truth Um, and how, how it should be, it can be, could be, or should be approached. Um... So the difficulty I felt here was that I needed to take a position on something that felt so elusive, so ambiguous, but also so revered and respected uh, as an institution, as the truth, that it was almost as if I was in relationship counseling with, uh, with Emma Bovary. And we, <laughs> we had to figure out how, this, how we were going to make this work. But this was the... Uh, uh, situation I found myself in. Um, and first of all, I began by talking and listening to the people who cared about this, which were um, the students in the class, and then by reading uh, celebrated writers of memoir and commentators on the, uh, on the subject and gathering um, all of these different points of view. Not that just because we write non-fiction or memoir, we have more to say or anything more important to say about what the truth is. But because I wanted to know what people who cared about this had to say. Um, so what I learned was that how we approach truth seemed utterly arbitrary. And, you know, often with, with, with such things, you're allowed to just have your own opinion and you're allowed to, uh, you're granted this... Uh, this level of uh, personal choice. But I think here, the, um, it was a kind of personal judgment that felt like it was going to be held up to moral standards that were utterly fluid. So you could get into trouble for doing something that like, one person would be like, oh yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Somebody else is like, no, you can't do that at all. Um, and those standards felt... Uh, Felt, felt so fluid, as fluid as trying to decide what it was that the truth was that we were trying to get at. So it was almost like this, uh, this shipwrecked, shipwrecked boat that was drifting on, 
on a surface, the ocean, that, was, that itself was already moving. So, I mean, trying to pin things down at this point felt, felt very difficult to me. But when I understood this, it felt like I had taken a kind of step forward. Um, how we approach truth be it in fiction or non-fiction, but perhaps especially in non-fiction, is a moral decision. And like other moral decisions, it's intensely personal, it's individual, and it's situational. And whatever you decide, you're going to find folks who agree with you. And you're going to find folks who thinking you're take adva- taking advantage of the reader or of others. And you're going to find folks who think you're boring because of the decisions you've made. And then folks who just don't care about you at all. So, in this sense, it's very much like just writing in general. Which... <laughs> Which, in turn, is very much just like being alive. Um, But what I took away from this is one size does not fit all for this truth debate. It doesn't fit all writers, it doesn't fit all readers, it doesn't fit all situations. Um, So, for example, I found this in Pam Houston's essay, Cornmates, that Kathy, where's Kathy? Oh, she's not here. She was here a minute ago, maybe just for dinner. Um, it's like, oh, Froud's going to start talking? I'm out of here. Um, but uh, she uh, initially sent me this uh, essay, Corn Maze, where, and this is one of the first things I read when I was trying to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to read you this one paragraph that Pam Houston wrote. When was it decided, when was that again and by whom, that we were all supposed to choose between fiction and non-fiction? What was not taken into account was that for some of us, truth can never be an absolute, that there can be at best only, only less true and more true, and sometimes those two collapse inside each other like a turducken. Given, <laughs> given the failure of memory, given the failure of language to mean, given metaphor, given metonymy, given the ever-shifting junction of code and context, given the 25 people who saw the same car accident, given our denial, given our longings, who cares really if she hung herself or slit her wrists when, that, when what really matters is that James Frey is secretly afraid that he's the one who killed her? Dear Random House Refund Department, if they were moved, then they got their $24 worth. So at the time, this felt like all the justification I needed for my admittedly very liberal approach to the truth. Well, what do I mean by this? These are some of the things that I would do. For a 12-month period, whenever I gave public readings, I would begin every reading by telling the audience that what I was going to tell them were all true stories. And then I would start reading stuff about walking through a post-apocalyptic landscape with Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and uh, the late Baseball Hall of Famer Jackie Robinson. I then went and published this book in which those uh, stories are recorded as non-fiction, knowing full well that that wasn't true and knowing full well that I hadn't researched much of what I had written about. But I justified this to myself because that is a book that deals with patterns of memory, not patterns of fact. And in my memory, it didn't need any research. I could check it against what was in my head. Um, So why did I do this? Well, I felt... uh, (laughs) hmm. In the readings that I gave, I wanted to... I tried to watch the crowd and see at what moment it was when it became clear that I was lying. Um, Whether it was at the first 
moment I mentioned Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, or whether it was clear that what I was talking about was a world that had dissolved, or rather than me being exposed as a liar, uh, were the audience coming to this point where I, it was clear that I was exposing this idea of a true story as one that is too optimistic, too open, that claiming to deliver one was as absurd as the apocalyptic world that I had created. I mean, I tried to avoid anything that claimed it was based on a true story. I hate that phrase, based on a true story. I just feel like it's so meaningless that... Uh, it can kind of be treated as an insult. <laughs> like everything, I mean, everything in some way is based on a true story. But what are the boundaries of based on? And what are the boundaries of true story? I mean, it seems like there, it, it suggests that there is some absolute truth at the core that is uh, recorded by who? By the government? I don't think so. <laughs> by the encyclopedia, by peer-reviewed journals, this idea that history is recorded by the victors or by the author. And I wanted to keep my distance from that entirely. I, wanted, I guess more so I wanted to play in the distance between based on a true story and where I was standing. And by telling people that everything I was going to read was true, I got to mess around and I got to... Uh, I guess make fun of that notion, but also expose the possibilities of that notion of a true story. Because I wonder if some people actually believed when I had finished my reading that everything I told them was true. I hope so. Well, I also hope not for their sake. But still. <laughs> what I loved about that Pam Houston essay was the sense that the markers of the text don't matter so much. What is more important is the emotional experience of the reader. Like she says at the end, if you got your emotional payoff then you got your $24 worth um, because that's how I felt I experienced reading and I experienced things that were questionably true or not whenever there was a controversy over a movie I'd seen like a documentary movie or a book it didn't really matter to me whether this stuff was true or not what mattered to me is it resonated in, in some way um, it also suggested the, uh, the old defense of the liar the emotional truth um, which is not something I've ever really clung to, but I like as a kind of safety net because it feels like a perfect way to respond to people who need a response. Um, because it, it, it's as fuzzy as the idea of the truth itself. Uh, the emotional truth becomes a buzzword in the way that the truth is like the king of the buzzwords, the king of the philosophical and literary buzzwords at the top of this mountain that... Uh, is built above things we should care about, but we can never really touch. We can never really get there, but we can talk about it and throw it around. So anyone who is going to throw absolute truth at me, I would just throw emotional truth back at them. <laughs> Fighting meaningless fire with meaningless fire. <laughs> but as I continued to read all of these opinions on the truth, I came to uh, much less forgiving points of view. So I, whereas I felt kind of backed up and enabled by uh, Pam Houston, I came across this excellent essay by Kevin Young, um, who is, you know, much more down the line and no nonsense. So I'll read a very short paragraph from this. My definition of creative nonfiction is simple. It is a radically subjective account of events that objectively took place. The moment you start making up events that you know did not take place, you're doing another sort of work. It's called fiction. Work seems just the right word. Fiction is not just a label, but a technique, a way of finding freedom, not from truth, but a freedom from 
pardon me, of freedom in truth told a different way. To claim there is no line between fiction and non-fiction is not a matter of opinion, but laziness. Hmm. Now, see, the problem I have with all of this is that these people make their arguments so well is that I tend to just side with whoever's argument I heard last. And... Uh, <laughs> When I hear Kevin Young's arguments and the way he, uh, he comes out with them, it's very hard for me to disagree with what he just said. But they're not really compatible with my own practice of nonfiction, and they're not really compatible. There's no common ground with Pam Houston that I felt so uh, enamored with. It's just no common ground at all. But how I know this is okay is that this is not a situation where we can apply one set of rules and stick to them. The situations are nuanced. The territory of nonfiction... And what it has the potential to be is not really yet defined. To write non-fiction is to live in a kind of frontier state. The rules, if any, are evolving. And the life expectancy for the sheriff is low. <laughs> so what do I think now, having gone through uh, these uh, investigations? I really like the idea of non-fiction. In the same way that I like the idea of being able to tell anyone anything and have them understand me. It feels like a very nice idea, something to aim for. It does not matter to me that in a philosophical, black and white, no grey sense, nonfiction is probably impossible. Making informed and thoughtful decisions about your limitations as a writer is possible. So is being aware of how you're using your experiences and taking responsibility. And this, to me, is the possibility of nonfiction. After all, genres are just really marketing terms. They let the bookseller know what shelf to put your book on. They let the reader know what to expect when reading. They relinquish people of the need to read actively, to do extra work, and that's fine. A great number of readers come to reading not, not actually to do work, and I pass no judgment on this whatsoever. A genre, as a label, is a one-word instruction manual on how a book should be read and emotionally processed. I would prefer the text to do this, not the one word on the back of the book. But I realize this would necessitate a kind of cultural shift in reading. Um, so I'm not holding my breath. The use, if genre has a use to me, it is a, as a constraint that enables the realization of the book. Something that enables writing, that provides a framework, lines that can be traversed if necessary in the interest of the book and in the interest of the text. As soon as we submit fully to genre and do not allow ourselves to traverse these lines, then we're beholden to genre and we are narrowing the scope of the work, which seems to me like utterly counterproductive. Um, so, but having said all of this, regardless of where we stand on the truth, people don't want to be lied to. That is, unless you're telling them you're about to tell them a lie and then you can pretty much do anything, including telling them the truth. So it was probably kind of frustrating when we're like, oh, everything I said was true and everything Joanna said was false. But if we told you that before, it probably wouldn't have been frustrating at all. So am I trying to say that labeling a book as fiction is a kind of cop-out? I guess this is like the closest part to SmackDown that we have. It's a cop-out. Because it means you can do anything you want. <laughs> I'm not actually going to go that far, but... If you've labelled your work as non-fiction, expect to be held to an ambiguous and at times contradictory moral code that finds frequent disagreement among other readers and rather writers. Well, is it worth it? 
why not just say your work is non-fiction? I'll tell you why I think it is. If nothing else, then to let your work become a part of the discussion of what non-fiction can actually be. We know it's not fiction. The name tells us that. But if fiction can really be anything, we don't really know very much more about what is not fiction. It seems to exist in a kind of like uh, underworld. Well, we have ideas about what it can be and we have opinions. But the only thing that can really define what nonfiction is, is the writing itself and the writing itself that ends up being published under that banner. So this is what I think. If you write nonfiction, write it on your own terms. Write it on, like, let those moral decisions be your own, not somebody else's. Write the book that you need to write, but be ready to defend it and be ready for disagreements. Should you then be ready to relinquish the label of nonfiction? I cannot give you an answer to that because like everything else, that is something you can only decide for yourself. Okay. So, the next thing we're going to do is uh, subvert the way questions are asked. So, <laughs> what would be really good is if you, ju- you want to ask a question, write it down on a piece of paper. And maybe, like, if you want to or not, please write it down on a piece of paper. And we'll put it in this picture, the picture of questions. And then I'm going to pull one out and put Joanna on the spot and then I will have the chance to reply to her response and then she will pull one out and put me on the spot and then we'll have a chance to reply so oh, the, the writer's workshop we thought you guys would have pens and papers yourselves but uh, I guess somebody will have some yeah there's the paper so we'll just give you a couple of minutes to formulate your questions to try and trick us like we tricked you and put them in the picture And then uh, we'll draw them out and we'll try and get through as many as we can. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing to pull out of the picture. We have to get at least two questions. They can be personal questions because we can lie. Yeah, you can ask us anything you want, but we neither of us guarantee you a truthful answer. It's part of the fun. Do you feel like there is moral? Like, do you feel like the moral conversation is as present with? Poetry or fiction? I mean, it's. I feel like poets have the sense that, like, they're operating above moral ground, uh-huh. that their work is so. Is that, might be only one? Oh, more will come, I hope. <laughs> Mickey, you're just the first one. Yes. I'm, I'm the first, first, I'm not like... The groundbreaker. groundbreaker. 
Don't be shy, folks. <laughs> Hooray! Are there any more? Is this... Uh... Because that's what happens when you put non-fiction or fiction on the back of a book. Yeah, indeed. We meant to frustrate you, to narrow your options. We meant, we meant to bring the smack down. Smack down the audience. Yes. Just like we're all falling into the trap of the major presses. <laughs> we have to rise up. Can I ask you one first? Or how do we do this? This is a hard question. Oh, no. <laughs> In Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace abandons postmodernist irony when writing about characters in recovery. Is this a good example of how truth can enhance the power of fiction? Wait, say that again. Okay. I'll let you read it. In Infinite it Jest, the- David Foster abandons postmodernist irony when writing about characters in recovery. Is this a good example of how truth can enhance the power of fiction? You know... Oh, sorry, I was just muttering it to myself. So it's a, it's a question about infinite jest and, um, and abandoning postmodernist irony to write about characters in recovery. And is this a good example of how truth can enhance the power of fiction? That's interesting because it's sort of about a, sort of like a stylistic choice, maybe, and, and is moving away, possibly is like moving away from irony. Like, is that... Because David Foster Wallace sometimes like does some things with pastiche and uses certain postmodern techniques, and I guess maybe there's something about a sort of like a fictional school or camp sort of like inundating you with a certain style, um, and I and that can sort of deaden an emotional response. So I almost feel like maybe this is more a question about. Um, like a sty- like a sort of like stylistic choice, and if that can sort of awaken feeling in, um, like in a reader, and it's something that a lot of postmodern writers are sort of critiqued for, like all these mind games and cerebral tricks, right? And that it can really leave you cold as a reader. And so, what are ways that you can try to create a more effective, like uh, with an A, experience for a reader? And I do think um, ch- changing tack and and um, suddenly writing um, in a way that feels stripped down or where you're not using a certain kind of trick or something like that. Like that variation, I think, can maybe um, pull something from a reader. And I do think that gets at a sort of emotional honesty. I feel like that is a way of enhancing what you're doing with the kind of um, emotional truth. But for the question of um, so, sort of interesting about David Foster Wallace, has anyone read Bow Down by Karen Green? 
It's amazing. So Karen Green is David Foster Wallace's widow, and she wrote a book called Bow Down, B-O-U-G-H, Down. Um, she's a, a collage artist, and this is her first um, sort of text, text image book. And it's, it's a memoir about David Foster Wallace's death and, you know, about physically cutting him down from the rafter. And she never mentions um, it, she never mentions David Foster Wallace by name. It appears nowhere on the back copy or the jacket copy. If you don't know who Karen Green is or you haven't you know, read about it or so, you, you would not know. And she doesn't, um, she doesn't want to give readings or interviews about it. She doesn't want to talk about it. Um, and it's a, it's a really beautiful book. And um, I just think it brings up all of these questions about um, you know, how you, in terms of our moral responsibility, and when, you, when you're writing about a public figure, when you're writing you know, intimately about a public figure, like what is, or an event that touched many people, like what is your responsibility as you process emotion? And I feel like she's handled it um, really well and gracefully. And it's not, there's not like, tons of like I mean there are it's incredibly intimate but without um you know naming names or sort of um it's a way that she's really getting at the core of something and so I I rec I I this is sort of going far afield but it's I really um I I recommend that book and I think it does something um for maybe how you think about David Foster Wallace's humanity but then also just thinking about how somebody um writes about a person who is so prolific and was this public intellectual, but then also was you know a husband, a, a friend, uh, a really troubled, depressive, like all, all of those things in one. All right. <laughs> I, I think what David Foster Wallace is so good at is try, like putting on that cape uh-huh. of pastiche and then throwing it away because there are moments of like utter sincerity like dotted throughout his his writing and i guess the question that came into my mind after that was is the truth more powerful when it is unadorned or when it's dressed up in uh, in pastiche or in any other literary technique it, i mean for irony substitute any other uh, device i guess and i think that depends on what that particular truth is you know it's uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be boring in the sense that I do think these things are very situational. I think it it depends on what the truth that you're dealing with is. It depends who you are to deal with it and who you are dealing with it for. Um, and I think in, in that book, in that situation, I don't know if it means that uh, it's an intervention of truth, but it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, I mean, the clothes come off, put it that way. It's, uh, it's no, no longer clothed in device or... Uh, postmodern irony uh we're just getting down to the the grittier more nakedness of the situation so i'm not going to say yes or no to whoever said that but uh, all right oh whoops you need this (laughs) richard if you write about your alien abduction would that be fiction or non-fiction if I wrote about mine, it would be nonfiction, but I can't say like that. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, uh, true of everyone else. I mean, I guess this is what I mean by it. it's a moral decision. If you really believe that that happened like I do, then, um, then it's nonfiction. Like the moral compass points to nonfiction. If you, uh, you know, if you know you're telling lies, then it's fiction. 
and I think that I mean that's maybe an overly simplistic way of looking at this stuff, but it's just if, also it's also interesting about like inten- like intention because you can imagine that there's you know there's that there's that idea that non that nonfiction right that Kevin Kevin Young was mm-hmm. was saying that it's you know a, a radically subjective account of objective. Uh, you know events, mm-hmm. but then the sort of the person that I imagine, um, well, me writing the alien abduction, um, writing about my alien abduction is that I do really believe that story, and that it did not actually happen. And so then you have that hmm. sort of, you kind of have that sort of overlay, which is which is possible. Like when I when I think back about many of the lies I told, particularly as a child, I really did believe them, and in a, in a very like very like there was a very big part of me that either believed that there were wolves in the drain pipe or wanted their, them to be there so badly that I, I kind of mm-hmm. like, was like, I will make them there with my mind. So I think that my, the story of my alien abduction, um, I, I would, I mean, in that case, I would probably want it to be marketed as nonfiction so people would understand what happened to me. Um, but I, I suspect that I would be uh, fictionalizing it heavily. Um, Maybe anyone would be. Well, who's 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 abducted by aliens? Because we should talk. I wasn't abducted, but it fascinates me. Yeah. 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 Like people's memoir of abduction by aliens. But your question was more: Have you guys been abducted by aliens? No, 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 no. It was just like, what do you call it? What, you know, if you write about your alien yeah. abduction. If it was up to me, all of the books would just be a mess on the bookshelf, as they are on my bookshelf at home. I used to have them in alphabetical order, but then I was like, where do you put anthologies and all this? Stuff? So I just mixed them all up. But I think that, uh, you know, there's a bookstore in San Francisco where they do it by color. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. Like, this, that's how I do it. What color is the spine of the book? I mean, I, science, yeah. Although, yeah. I mean, the way science is set up, it, you, there's ev- right, it's evidence-based, right? But it's still just, in the end, stories that we're telling ourselves about like how these things work. Now, there's a lot more evidence to back up those stories than uh, the things that we made up. But they're still just, a, it's still telling stories. Now, yeah. I, I would just be careful in my bookstore about assigning fact to anything. Well, <laughs> like history versus science or history versus oh wow yeah I mean well some of them do I think uh, I mean I, I don't know because I don't write it so I don't know what the, what's going through their heads but I feel like a lot of that 
a lot of histor- uh, people who've written history have done it with a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. So they know that what they're doing isn't like an objective account of like, here are the things that happen. But you know what this makes me think of? The Colorado History Museum, which is really great, I think. Um, and they have that whole room of like the shameful history of Colorado where they have the uh, internment camps and they recreate like, oh, this is what a tent would have been like. And they have the segregated holiday resort um, in the mountains. It's not the stuff that I expected to see in the um, in the Colorado History Museum. I was expecting it would all be like A to Z of Denver, which and that's a lot of fun. But like the fact that they in- included that as well feels like they wanted to provide a more objective account of the state's history um and i think that that is peculiar when you look at it in uh, against other his other written histories and other presented histories it seems like you know there's that like cliche history is history is written by the victors right and uh, No, that's just what we were supposed to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, yeah, I, I agree completely. But I do think those are all stories. I mean, story, and, and they could have, I mean, more, more people behind them saying here's evidence or not. But I do think they are, I mean, they're all sort of arranged in some kind of, of, of narrative. I mean, what, one thing that I used to do with my students in my comp classes, at the, I taught at Providence College, and they had um, the Soviet encyclopedia, set of Soviet encyclopedias. And so I would bring in um, uh, the, uh, an, uh, sort of American or British encyclopedia entries for capitalism and communism and the Soviet encyclopedia, the definitions for capitalism and communism, because encyclopedias are, you know, ob- ob- objective. And the fact, I mean, you know, you, the, the way that those capitalism and communism are treated, it's not, and it's not just like, oh, the Soviets, that's all propaganda. I mean, the Ameri- I mean when you compare them, it was, it was like pretty remarkable, just as a way of, of having my students like think about the fact that many of the things that we receive as fact are still in, like, embedded in a particular you know, um, vantage, like a particular social, historical, material reality. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. I mean, what if you know what would a dialogue be like that wasn't about that? Mm-hmm. You know, it dealt with the same. I mean, you're coming close, I think, to defining it. You know, what if we flew it out? The whole idea is we just studied, for example, writing. Mm-hmm. You know, and we studied about subjects instead of dividing it into poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. We just studied writing about something. Yeah, yeah, it would come close to Richard's bookshelf. I mean, I think it sounds it sounds similar. <laughs> you should you should talk to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> why, why, why? Is it? Um, I don't know. Yeah, we'll just, yeah, maybe we'll just pick one out. Wait, no, it's my. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll both answer it. What's more powerful, fiction or nonfiction? All right, Fred, this is what everyone's. Doing. <laughs> come on, right? How are we supposed to do this? No. <laughs> oh, you're scared. I don't know. We're. <laughs> Sneak attack! Sneak 
attack. Um, it's obviously non-fiction. Obviously not okay. non-fiction. I've been training too hard for my ultra marathon. I was I'm tired. <laughs> very, very tired. So all those years of veganism made me very weak. Um, what's more powerful, fiction or non-fiction? Well, unfortunately, non-fiction due to the sneak attack. <laughs> I mean, I just think it. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? It's just like do what you got to do, and then let someone else who really cares about whether it's fiction or nonfiction and decide what, wh- what it is. If that's the way you want to go, and what's enabling for you as a writer, I do feel like is really at the heart of it. I mean, for some reason, when when I think, oh, I'm writing. If if I if I have to write nonfiction, I I just I freeze up. I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't do it I just I'm like oh I feel like I'm ventriloquizing myself like you know coming up with your point of view or your voice in a project is very difficult and for some reason when I have the additional idea it's supposed to be my voice then I'm like oh god I don't want to hang around with my voice Um, you know I like it when I have when I pretend to myself maybe oh this is not me this is me in another voice like that that makes it that's it just makes it so that I can write and I do feel like that and I think this is what Richard was saying really um, kind of usefully, uh, where, where he was saying it's a, it's it really is about like the constraint that enables you to produce mm-hmm. your work. I mean, maybe the idea that you're you know setting yourself the challenge of, of writing nonfiction and delving into something and using your memory and like finding a way of of approaching something that's dangerously true. Maybe that energizes you, and so you know you can absolutely. I think if if you want to tell yourself you're writing fiction to enable you to write your book, then do it. If you need to tell yourself you're writing nonfiction, do that. If you need to tell yourself you're writing, I don't know, whatever it might be, invent a name that enables you to write the book. Invent the constraint. Right. The aliens who abducted you are are making you write something, (laughs) like whatever it is. I felt that that's really the only interest in genre that I have as a way to realize your text. Otherwise, it's just like, yeah, it, it just doesn't bother me. I, I, I feel like it should, where I am interested in dwelling is on the cusp of these things um, where you're borrowing from all of them. Um, I don't want to have to decide that this is what this is and this is what that is. And it just doesn't, uh, it feels constrictive to me rather than uh, uh, generative. And if that constriction and that constraint means that it's going to help you to realize what you're going to do, then by all means, go and do it. But for me, it doesn't. It feels the opposite. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of these questions to get through. <laughs> I'm glad this one's yours. What is the purpose of life? 42. Nonfiction, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Where does poetry fit into all of this? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, it, um, who wrote the, okay. So when I applied to that MFA program many years ago, you could apply in poetry or prose. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense because there's prose poetry as well. <laughs> then, while I was there, people stopped referring to what they were doing as prose and started calling it fiction. Just like, oh, so you write poetry or fiction. But wait, does that mean that all poetry is nonfiction? 
Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think the point is that there's all of these false dichotomies that we strike up, and I think that fiction and non-fiction is one of those false dichotomies as well. That there is overlapping space for all of these things, and poetry is, you know, another one of these that waltzes in and takes what it has to take, and whoops, and uh, and then goes away. Um, I don't think any of these are in opposition. Is I guess what I'm trying to say, that they exist, they overlap, they transcend, and um, they exist for you to find yourself in them, not to close you in. There, I mean, I don't, maybe you'd be able to speak to this, because I think it's something that people are maybe even having a week around at Naropa right now, but there's a documentary poetics. Just two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, so... I mean, I do think that there there is this sort of maybe idea that comes up in certain um, for certain poets or in certain sort of poetic movements. So the idea of like the poet as witness or the po- the poet as sort of um, mm-hmm. um, be like bringing language forward. Um, there's this like really I don't know I forget who it is. Maybe someone knows. Um, but there's this famous poet um, who was. Um, in a concentration camp, and um, was no, was known by other people. And this is I'm, I'm getting this from the introduction of one of Zizek's books. But I, I can't remember any of the details except that it really it just moved me as this. So there's this poet, and she's she's in line with everyone else, and somebody turns to her and says, "Akwatova, that's who it was, um, right?" It is like, "Can you write about this?" Can, and she said, "Yes, I can. Like she could do it. She can." She was like, "I will write. I can do this. I can write about this." And so just I mean I feel like there's sort of that. Um, um, maybe sort of current in, in documentary poetics. I mean, C.D. writes one big self um, about um, sort of takes language and, wor- and works with images from photographer inmates in Louisiana prisons. Um, there have been a lot of projects like that that I think are sort of explicitly um, taking, like as their point of departure, a, a, an issue of grave human concern. And I do think there's, I mean, people, poets get criticized, I think, for like flying above all of that with like their, you know, lyrical fans. But there is, there is, see my, up here, that's what I'm saying, the poets. That's where the poets But, um, I don't know, um, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't write, I don't write the poetry, but, um, I don't know, do you read works of documentary poetics or is that anything that... Well, I, I feel like the definition of poetry that I'm most comfortable with is any instance of language reaching beyond what it is actually able to do. And that does not exclude fiction. It does not exclude nonfiction. It does not include any, it does not exclude any possible generic appellation. It only includes or transcends. And I think that we get caught up in like, oh, that looks like a poem. So that's what a poem can be. A poem can be anything, as long as it is reaching beyond what language by definition is able to do. So poetry is failure. It is always going to be failure. But just because we know we can't get to where it's trying to go doesn't mean that it shouldn't continue to pursue that goal. The closer we get to it, the more beautiful, the more profound, the more whatever it might be. Which also makes it seem like poetry is the thing that that maybe is coming closest to the truth because language is like this, right? It's like language is what we use to 
you know, mean, but it's the thing that gets in the way of us ever meaning what we mean. I mean, it's, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the obstacle, it's the road, it's the vehicle and the roadblock. And so when poetry sort of reaches beyond mm-hmm. that, maybe it's the one thing, because even if like memory, we, we, even if we had this sort of access to reality, we'd still have to put the words to it, which would never quite be it. Cause mm-hmm. we're always dealing with the mediation of language. And so poetry surging, you know, past that and failing is maybe at least, you know, asymptotally getting toward that distant, impossible thing. Well, once you think about it like that as well, the idea of language and approaching the truth in language seems utterly absurd. But it doesn't mean I don't think that we should give up. Just because it feels better the closer you get. Sorry. Go ahead. In my old journals, I find written down things I don't remember Things I do remember are not written down, which are true. Like which one of the two are true? Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) This is, you know, this seems like a kind of that idea that um, that your memory just keeps changing every time you remember it. Um, it sort of seems like when you write it down, like that's when you like fix a version or something, and so then maybe everything you, you can. Um, maybe it's like the one stationary point and then you just keep remembering things and they just change and change and change and change and then you can go back and it looks nothing like what you, you started with because you can't access it anymore. I mean, there's like the things you remember and then there's the things that you write down. I don't know. Sometimes I write things down they go immediately out of my mind. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I feel like this is just a good departure point to like think about and do something with. Who wrote this one? Uh. <laughs> How are we doing for time? Oh, we have to um, go through these a little quicker. Oh God. <laughs> Richard, uh? how do you define nonfiction in your own writing? What line will you not cross? Oh man, um, yeah, right. That I, I've never really. Uh, I guess the the line I won't cross is who wrote this one, so I can speak to the Henry. <laughs> Well, I, I can only go back to this idea of like a moral sense and that the line can't just be drawn, it's only felt. Like, in the, how do we experience morality? Through this like still small voice in the conscience, maybe. Or by Jiminy Cricket flying around. <laughs> like, telling it, right, exactly. Um, and uh, so there is, uh, this is such a cop-out answer, but the line isn't, there isn't just the line, right? It's um, how did that feel to do this and why am I doing this? And if I feel like I'm doing something just to make the story better or if I'm exploiting something and it's a feeling, it's not like a, a code as it were, but if it feels like, you know, I'm, I've written things and had the draft that way, three or four drafts, right? And then realized that I was uncomfortable with like a detail I put in that wasn't real. Um, but thought like, oh, I, I can, I can keep this. I can get away with it, and then realized at the end that no, this is the detail that's messing everything up. The thing that I have, uh, I, I've used to try and make it like a bit juicier or a bit like it draws attention to itself. And now, will it draw the attention of the reader in the way that it draws mine? Because I know it's not real. I don't know, but you have to just, I think, rely on that in, interior sense. So that's where the line is for me. So it's always moving. I guess. Um, 
So not, I mean, non-fiction for me is is just what it says. It's not fiction, and if fiction can really be anything, non-fiction exists as this unknown land. So I can kind of determine what I want that to be for myself, and I'm very happy for people to disagree with me. I'm very happy happy to get in trouble because then maybe I would sell more books. But um, <laughs> so I guess. It's whatever I want it to be in the moment. I don't know how many people in here feel that they write fiction. Is that because I mean, because Richard Richards talked about the moral compass, and I just wanted to just briefly say, like, I think fiction writers also have a moral compass. No, because a bunch of immoral, <laughs> <laughs> moral liars, sadists. No, I mean, just I mean, it's not like. It did this happen, right? Is there object, like correlation to objective events? But I think what Richard was just saying, you know, resonated with me that sense of like, am I exploiting something? Like, why am I using this detail? Like, who's am I appropriating something in a way that feels? And it is a feeling, I think. Like, do I, I feel uncomfortable? And I think we we've all had maybe experiences reading a book where an author just feels like they're mean to a character or sets somebody up for something. I don't know. I just I think that there is this sort of this moral dimension to nonfiction because for me it actually I find when I'm writing fiction that that sensation you're talking about Richard of I'm including this detail, it's when I put something true. <laughs> and I know it's true and I'm afraid everybody else can see mm-hmm. that it is. And I also yeah. get that feeling you were talking about of that I think it it comes down to me to the eye. And nonfiction is writing that I am able and comfortable to stand behind the eye, the speaking eye. And fiction is writing in which I'm not comfortable with doing it. And that I would usually enter a piece knowing whether that eye is something that I will support like bodily or, or whether it's something I want distance from. And I very rarely write things where I go into it and I'm like, this is fiction. This is something that is distance from me. And I think that is the difference between us. And that's what we should fight about. <laughs> maybe not. <Go. laughs> um, maybe, maybe in the interest of time, we should just say if, if anyone had a question that didn't get, like a burning question that didn't get, didn't get drawn, drawn, do you speak it? Ask it now or we'll just start brawling. Mm-hmm. You've indicated more or less throughout that you personally know what is fiction and what is nonfiction in your writing. Do you? I don't you think I do. You can't tell. And I but I think we can also get into certain habits of mind, and so I've just never considered what I've, I've just always thought. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm writing about wolves. I'm writing about th- you know. I, I make these things up, and um, recently um, in my short story collection, which is my dissertation at DU. Um, my uh, dissertation advisor kept calling it a memoir in my defense, oh. and. Um, and it was incredibly, and I was like, he read it, right? But he had, I mean, he definitely had read, I mean, he read it. He just saw it as these linked stories where a first, I mean, it's often a first person narrator, usually a woman thinking, um, 
each each story has the title of, of like kind of like a catchphrase from the news or something. It's sort of like an oblique, like sort of subjective, personal response, but not, but sort of like at an angle to it. And I sort of saw them as a series of fictions that were kind of a related book project, and he saw it as um, a memoir. And then and then it just it was just interesting to me to, to think of it like that, as in, is it patterns of memory or patterns of subjective response? I can't say it's not. It all came out of my head. It's all sort of a record of what I thought over these years. You know, so I guess I do feel like I, I'm like, oh, I, I write fiction. That's what I do. If I told myself I'm writing a memoir, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known what to do. I wouldn't have known what, what is what is worthy of a memoir, what do you include? I just don't have a rubric for that because I don't think of it like that. But if someone else sees it as a memoir and that feels interesting, to me, I'm fine with that. I actually am like, oh, I'm going to go and think about that. that was, it was the thing that was the most compelling about the defense. It was just feeling like, what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So, I know I've revised, I've written scenes that are supposed to be I think those. I think that's when you're occupying the space where it could be both or it could be neither. And what I experience is the most exciting place. So I feel like there are times where I'm very clear that what I'm doing is fiction, or um, I'm using the truth in a different way, however that might be. And things that I'm uh, more that there, I'm clear when I'm on like both sides of a line but when I feel like pieces really take flight for me is when I don't really know and I don't know what I'm doing and uh, I realized that I could be in uh, in both camps it's interesting in my dissertation defense the book was referred to as a novel <laughs> a spiritual autobiography and a collection of poems and excerpts from that book have been published as fiction non-fiction and poetry and I never told them what it was I just let them decide what it was. It's not a book. It never was published, but still, it's... I mean, it is interesting, right? Like, to not tell people what it is and just let them be it, because then they get to figure out how to read it, and they have a much more personal connection to the text. And as soon as you pick out... I don't know, as soon as you go to the bookstore and they're like, this is not a biography, this is this, this is that part of the experience of reading is robbed from you because you're already told what this is and told what generic ex- expectations to have. And, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's, uh, well, on that note, I think we're done. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and for those questions. 
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.